We're going to memorize those names in a minute. <laughs> if you are uh, wondering whose fault this bike accident was, it was a one-bike pile-up. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm an extrovert. Uh, I jumped onto some strangers, which means a lot of new people to meet. Uh, got to a conversation, wasn't paying attention, and here we are. So, all right. Um, as you said, I would give an update on the uh, capital campaign, our December giving. If you're new to Sojourn, let me just kind of fill you in on uh, what, what that's about. About a year ago, not about a year ago, just over a year ago, we uh, started raising funds for the purchase renovation of the building next door to us. Uh, that will become our sanctuary. This building will become uh, kid space and multi-purpose space, et cetera. Uh, the total kind of project cost was going to be about five, uh, a, little, a little north of $5 million. Uh, and our minimum goal that we had to raise between last December and then this coming October uh, was $2.2 million to, to hit a baseline. Uh, and so we started out last December with kind of like, uh, let's, let's do a December giving, let's launch into it. And then we set up pledges, et cetera. Last December, we raised 337000 which was incredible. Uh, and so this December, we, we just kind of settled with where we are. Let's uh, our financial stewardship team. So let's let's try to raise two hundred and fifty thousand, uh, and and that should get us uh, a good good way down the road. Uh, and this December, uh, with a goal of two fifty, we raised three hundred and ninety six thousand dollars, which is, I mean, like I don't even know what to say to that. Like I don't know how to respond to that. Um, just praise the Lord. Deeply grateful. Uh, on December 1st, uh, we had a meeting in here, and we gave an overall update of, of where we were. And what we said was, we, uh, based on what's been given, what's, what's actually in the bank, what's been pledged, uh, we have about 17.9% left to raise between then and next October. 17.9% uh, is $393,800. So our 17.9% is now 0%, which is incredible. Now, um, I want to say three things. One, uh, first, thank you guys for your generosity. Uh, that doesn't happen without overwhelming sacrifice by our people. Uh, whether seven, seventy, seven hundred, or seven thousand, it does not happen without overwhelming generosity by our people. Two, um, please continue to give as you have pledged, and if you're uh, not giving to it, uh, we do hope that 100% of uh, of anyone who calls uh, Sojourn Home. Yeah, yeah, we know. We get it. Uh, so I feel about talking about money, too. Um, uh, we do hope 100% of anybody who calls Sojourn Home would, uh, would participate in the capital campaign. Third, does this mean the capital campaign is over now? No. No, not even close. 2.2 uh, is the bank-imposed minimum, right? Our our, our hope is that we'd land somewhere closer in the 2.5 to 2.8 range, uh, and my hope is that we'd land in the 5 million range. So capital campaign is not over. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's talk Luke, but I, I, I do. Uh, Sojourn, you guys just blow us away. Y'all really do. On a regular basis with your sacrifice and your generosity and your commitment to this community and family, you blow us away. All right. Luke is uh, one of the four Gospels. I talk about the... I just feel like I'm right on top of y'all, and I've got to fix that a little bit. Um, thanks, Dots. 
Luke is one of the four Gospels that talk about the life, ministry, teaching of Jesus. It was written to a man named Theophilus, who was a Roman citizen. So, uh, if you think first century non-religious Roman, probably, uh, probably a government uh, official, uh, government official. The early chapters of Luke, he's introducing characters into the story, uh, introducing characters like Mary and Elizabeth and uh, the, the birth of Christ and uh, today, when, in what Luke is emphasizing in this development uh, as Jesus launches his public ministry, he's going to emphasize something that's said. Something that's said, is what he's going to highlight, something that's said that if we were to believe, it would, I think, redefine much about our life. We'd find it beautiful, helpful, compelling, shaping. So let me, let me frame it like this. There are certain things said in our lives by certain people that have uh, enormous effects on us. I want to give you one example from my life that is silly, but it's an example. I, I couldn't think of a better one. When I was a kid uh, playing Little League Baseball, my dad used to stand on the fence uh, next uh, while I was pitching, uh, and he would say this. Uh, he would scream this so everyone could hear it. Son, they can't hit what they can't see. Son, they can't hit what they can't see. He actually would say rock and fire, which was so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> rock and fire, son, they can't hit what they can't see. What dad was saying was they can't hit what they can't see, but let me, let me tell you what I heard as a 10-year-old. I heard if I can throw a baseball hard, my dad is proud of me. If I could just throw it a little faster, he'd be a little more proud. That's what I heard. Another example, if we think about the dolls that our kids play with, specifically our daughters, not all of them, but a lot of them have bodies that are imaginary, that are shaped in imaginary ways, and so we subtly say, oh, look how pretty this one or how beautiful this one, and what do we get catechized into our daughters? I'll never be that. There are things that are said that we hear that shape us, that influence us as we grow, and they shape us as adults. As adults, we, we, we learn to think things like this, that if my work isn't deemed important, I must not be important. My work is not considered socially, culturally important, therefore I am not important. If I'm single, it must mean that nobody wants me. If my marriage is on the rocks, it must mean that God is angry at me or what my spouse is saying about me is true. These things that are said to us, they have the power to create. They have the power to create security, courage, or insecurity and fear. But the words that are spoken to us have the power to create. And in our text, Luke is highlighting words spoken from the Father to the Son. The question is why? why. Why this emphasis on words spoken from the Father to the Son in this uh, text? What do we learn about Jesus from it? Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to find out together. We're going to look at it under three headings. One, the divine Son. Two, the human Son. Three, the obedient Son. And so, let's talk divine Son. He opens our, our text with an interesting word. So, look at verse 18. Verse 18. With many other exhortations, he, that's John the Baptist, preached the good news to the people. So John the Baptist, he shows up, and his, his role is to prepare the way of the people, prepare the way of the Lord for the people, prepare the people for the coming of the uh, Messiah. And it says that he preached um, good news to the people. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I find it interesting. The, the word that he uses is the verbal form of the word gospel. So literally... It says, he showed up and he proclaimed the gospel. Now, the message that John was preaching was not 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 Corinthians 15 gives a succinct definition of the core of the gospel, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. This is not the message of John the Baptist. We're not there in the narrative yet. And so why would, uh, why would John preaching, um, why would this be the word that Luke uses to describe the message that John the Baptist was preaching? Why would he do that? What's this good news he was talking about? Well, look at verse 21. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, he was praying, and the heavens were opened. Now, the other, the other gospels, uh, the, the way that they uh, write this account, this baptism of Jesus account, uh, they're, they're highlighting, underlining, italicizing the baptism of Jesus. That's the one that they're putting on front and center on display. Uh, but that's not what Luke does. The way that Luke writes it, he highlights what comes next. So he's highlighting what comes after uh, this. And the reason is that the other Gospels, they have a particular emphasis on trying to show Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior, where Luke is showing him as the global Savior. Luke is showing Jesus as the global uh, Savior. So he's reminding Theophilus, keeping it in context of who he's writing to, he's reminding him that, hey, listen, Rome's not your Redeemer. Hey, Theophilus, Rome is not your Redeemer. Jesus is. Jesus is. Rome is not your Redeemer. He's saying that the King is here, that He has gone to great lengths in this opening of the uh, Gospel of Luke to highlight and to show the kingship of Jesus, that He is distinct from all other kings on the earth, and that part and parcel of the Gospel is Jesus establishing the kingdom of God on earth, which, um, which uh, we, we need to see, which helps us, which frames for us that what Luke has been doing, what Luke has really gone to great lengths to try to do is to theologically frame Jesus as the king to come while contrasting him with the kings of the earth. So he's been showing him as this king, this long-awaited king that was to come, but also showing him as distinct and different from the other kings of the earth. Now, Luke's point as part of the gospel includes Jesus establishing the kingdom of God on earth. That to have a fully orbed understanding of what the gospel is, we need both 1 Corinthians 15 and we need Luke. We need, um, we, uh, we, we, we need how God is reconciling individuals to himself, and we need to see how God is healing the broken world and how those fit together. Now, um, I do know that when we talk kingdom of God, when we talk kingdom and kingdom and the king to come, it can sound distant, a little emotionally distant, as if it's detached from uh, human emotion. Uh, but is it? It's not at all. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him, that's Jesus, in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. This is the Father speaking to the Son. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is what the Father says to the Son. You are my Son, literally my Son, the Beloved, the one that I love, with whom I am well pleased, with whom and in whom I take delight. So this is another place where Luke is making a statement of relationship where he's continuing to highlight the unique relationship between Jesus and the Father. And here, in this saying, you are my son, the beloved, uh, the one who I'm well pleased. He is highlighting and emphasizing the honor, the access, and the safety of the son that Jesus has. The, see, the, the honor of the son 
was because the Son was the one who inherited everything that the Father had, the rank, the status, the wealth of the Father, the firstborn Son inherited all of it, all of it. And he's saying, all that I have belongs to you. He's saying, you are my beloved Son, the one that I love. This is him saying that the Son has just a unique access to the Father that no one else has, no one else has ever had. Now, if you, if you could put yourself in both Roman and Jewish shoes, how they would have heard that, seen that, how that would have collided with them. The Roman would have gone, are you, are you kidding me? Like you, you're, you're showing up on the scene and saying that uh, you have some special access to God, access that no one else has, that your religion is the one right religion, would have been uh, pretty offensive. And the Jew, uh, you think that you have an access to God that we don't have. Who do you think you are? This would have been contrasting both Jewish and Roman. And the Father is saying, yeah, he's, uh, he's different. He's the one with whom I am well pleased. He has the safety of the Son. And I don't mean physical safety. That obviously is not where Jesus' life led. Uh, but I do mean the emotional and spiritual safety, the safety that comes from knowing that you have a Father who delights in you. In his opening chapters, Luke is highlighting and showing the unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. He's showing him not just as Mary's son, though he is Mary's son, showing him as the divine son, as God's son, the son that has the empowerments of the Spirit, which is the point of the Spirit coming down on him, and it's, a, it's an empowerment that he's about to need, an empowerment he would need soon because he's not only a divine son, he's also a human son, which is the point of the genealogy. So, let's memorize the names. Y'all ready? I will spare you uh, my effort at butchering the names, but I do want us to see how the genealogy begins and how it ends, um, because there, there's something unique happening in this genealogy that doesn't really happen anywhere else. Uh, it begins in Luke 3.23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it keeps going, and it keeps going, and this is how it finishes. Verse 38. The sons of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So th this genealogy, it, work, it, it starts with Jesus and it works its way uh, back, back to Adam. And this wasn't an inversion of normal genealogies. This was not how genealogies normally work. Normally, genealogies went past to present. This one goes present to past. What's the point? Why would he do that? Uh, because genealogies are working their way uh, somewhere. You can look at Matthew 1, uh, and, and you can see an example in the Scriptures of uh, a genealogy going past to, to, uh, to, to present. But genealogies were meant to build. They were meant to build somewhere, and the thrust was where it finished, where it ended. And in inverting this normal genealogy, what Luke is doing is Luke is placing, at, uh, placing Jesus in the lineage of Adam. But he's placing him in the lineage of Adam, emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, that he wasn't distinct from us, that he wasn't other than us, but he was fully human like us. While he was the divine son, fully divine, he was also the human son, fully human, identifying, able to identify with you, with me, showing him as the human son. Uh, now, it, it begs a question, a fair question, I think, because that genealogy really is a bit of a uh, parenthesis in the uh, in the uh, in the section. Why would he go to the length to show him has divine son, but also human son? 
because it matters that we see that to understand that He was the obedient Son as well. Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, th- this is um, one connected story from the baptism of Jesus to the wilderness of Jesus. One uh, connected story. And first century readers reading this, their minds would have flashed back somewhere. It would have flashed back to this time when Israel was in the wilderness. Israel was the uh, Old Testament people of God, uh, and God led them into the wilderness where God tested them in the wilderness. And Israel, in the wilderness, proved themselves to be unfaithful. The unfaithful, unfaithful people of of God. And Luke is setting up a clear contrast between Israel and Jesus. So what's about to happen is he's about to be tempted by the devil, and Luke is highlighting, highlighting the obedience of Jesus. One commentator put it like this, the point of the entire narrative is clear. Unlike the Israelites, 